Hey everyone, we've made it. We have made it to the end of 2022. Been a pretty lousy year actually, but one of the highlights has of course been DF Direct Weekly. <laughs> and um, this is the 92nd edition. Yes, 92. Uh, joining me this week to do something a little different. First of all, Oliver McKenzie. Hello. Hey, Rich. How you doing? It's an absolute joy to have you here. I don't think uh, we've actually shared a direct before, so I'm really looking forward to this one. So it's going to be fun, I think. And uh, of course, John Linneman. Hey, Rich and Oliver. Yeah, I think we've been on a DF Direct together, but uh, it's great to have you here as well. And we've got some fun stuff to talk about today. A little uh, different than usual, though, given that there's not that much news, but hey. Yeah, not much news except uh, Epic <laughs> uh, agreeing a massive uh, settlement with the FTC for over $500 million. Uh, John Carmack leaving um, Meta with a great degree of shade sent towards uh, Mark Zuckerberg. Um, PlayStation's new controller having less battery life than the existing DualShock. Which sucks, albeit by the way. With, That's... <laughs> Albeit with a bunch of extra features, but, but yes. But we're not going to talk about any of that. <laughs> um, this one is a special, a DF Direct supporters special. The entire episode is dedicated to questions from supporters. Usually we just have time for maybe, you know, three, four, five the whole show is going to be about uh, supporter questions, but, you know, it's going to be topical. Uh, let's crack on. Let's crack on with the first question. This one from SJ33 in brackets, Jake. Hi, Jake. I'm Hi, just Jake. doing that because do that. That Alex isn't here. <laughs> <laughs> um, his question. Hello. Uh, this week, Epic has deleted all classic Unreal games from all storefronts, except for the much-disliked uh, Unreal Tournament 3, perversely, as I see it. This is tantamount to historical vandalism. Historically significant games being made unavailable for no obvious reason. They claim the reason to be the closure of the master servers, but plenty of games remain available on storefronts long after their <laughs> online services are shut down. And indeed, the Unreal community are already on top of maintaining a community master server. Clearly, Epic wants Unreal to be nothing more than the name of a stuttery engine. What do such delistings say about the long-term availability of our industry's history through legitimate means? Also, what memories do you guys have of the Unreal games? John, this one's right wow. up your alley, right? Yeah, obviously. Uh, yeah, I've, I love all the Unreal games. I do own copies of them all. Uh, and Unreal 1 is one of my favorites from the 90s for what it offered. But it, it is, it's it's a bit of a shame to see this happening, but at the same time, you know, as he noted, the community is already there to save the day, and the stuff will remain playable. But it does say a lot about, I guess, Epic's thinking on, on this original legacy, but at the same time, I, I can't help but wonder if there's something else in the works. I don't know. It, it, because I, I, I want to say, like, it's disappointing that they're behaving this way, but maybe they're also planning something else, right? Like, it's entirely possible. But mm. so we don't really know yet. But uh, I don't like the delisting of games like this from any storefront. I mean, in this case, yes, it's easy enough to get your hands on them again, but it's still not a good look. Uh, and it goes against what I'd like to see. And whether a company does this or not really just kind of seems to depend on who's in charge at the moment. You know, well, some in, leadership in values. Case, it's, always, it's always going to be Tim Sweeney, I suspect. <laughs> yeah, certainly which, for the foreseeable future. Although, I mean, would Tim Sweeney specifically have made this decision? I don't know, maybe. But it seems like an odd one, given how important these games are to their legacy. Mm. Um, 
I, it's very strange, I must say. Any thoughts on this one, Oliver? Uh, well, most of the Unreal games are before my time, although I do enjoy a good uh, round of UT 2004 from time to time. But uh, yeah, I mean, it seems very unfortunate, especially considering that the IP is presumably in Epic's hands. There's no real reason to do it beyond the server issue, but that seems like something that's so easy to circumvent for a series like this. So I really don't know why they would do it. And it's a little unfortunate that right now Epic's, uh, yeah, main associations are uh, our Unreal Engine and then um, Fortnite. I mean, that's what they want, right? Yeah. <laughs> that's the association <laughs> that, that makes them money. Yeah, it's highly unfortunate that they're making millions. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, Unreal's just kind of a footnote, I guess, to them at this point, which is a shame because uh, Rich and I are much older than you, so we were there for, for Unreal. I remember getting the original Unreal at the time and just absolutely being floored by it. Uh, I think I've mentioned it before, but <clears throat> I remember first walking out of that ship uh, walking over to the edge of the valley and looking out over the lake below and there's this huge waterfall in the distance that's just pouring down into that area and it was so beautiful at the time I ran and got members of my family to come see it it's like you wow. look at this graphics will never get better than this this is the best what? thing I've ever seen you were running it on voodoo graphics I assume actually at that point? initially I ran it on a power VR card uh, and then I got a voodoo <laughs> card a little bit after that but Wow. Uh, that was one of those games that actually natively supported uh, the power VR, which was okay. unusual, but it did. It was cool. So I remember, obviously, I was actually in the games business when um, Unreal was being produced. I think it was being um, published in Europe and the UK, certainly by a company called GT Interactive. Yeah. And um, I believe it might have, it, one of the trade shows, I believe it might have been ECTS. They actually had a build there and it ran terribly. And um, I, I think the thing was <laughs> that it was in development, the first Unreal was in development for so long that by the time it actually came out, there were things like graphics accelerators and obviously processing power had increased significantly during the period of Unreal's development. So when it came out, it was actually pretty awesome. But I just remember when I first saw it thinking, wow, can PCs actually cope with this? But that was in a, <clears throat> that was in a time where you didn't really worry about that too much because you always knew that the PC would be like twice as fast right, the following right. year. But yeah, that's my sort of uh, abiding memory about that. In terms of your theory about um, uh, maybe they're doing something else with it, you know, this is sort of like um, what happened with the GTA trilogy where they delisted all of the games uh, and then, uh, you know, as a bonus, went after all of the mods and had those taken mm. down. This is obviously take two, not epic. Um, uh, but I think if you're going to be having um, some sort of controversial phase in your pipeline, you should actually be disclosing what's coming in future. That's true. Like, okay, we're going to be dis we're going to be uh, delisting um, GTA, but be that's because we're working on this remaster, which is aims to preserve and uh, modernize the game. Uh, that would have been, you know, it would have made it, wouldn't have <laughs> made up for the egregious legal assault on modders, but at mm -hmm. least, you know, you'd have had an idea of what's coming. So if there is something coming for those classic games regarding Unreal, then I'd have thought it would have made more sense to actually present the plan. Because right now there is no plan that we're aware of, and we're just thinking, wow, this is a bit of a crappy move from Epic. And it's not as if they're short of servers. <laughs> That's the other thing, right? <laughs> no, exactly. 
<laughs> so I guess it's a, a kind of, you know, TBC, a to be confirmed about what's actually happening there. But in the meantime, at least the community is stepping in. And maybe that was the, that was, you know, Epic's thinking to sort of, you know, hand it over to the community. But, it, you know, it should have been done in a bit more of a graceful way, I think. But yeah, interesting times. Um, let's move on to the next question. This one from someone. That's literally his hacker alias for this question. Someone. Uh, what was the most successful cross-gen release of the year? Will 2023 be the year that we leave last-gen behind? Now, Oliver, you've you've covered a big bunch. I mean, you are Mr. Cross-gen. <laughs> yeah. I hate to say it. Yeah, yeah. This, uh, we've assigned you to this and uh, you are making the most of it. Yeah. yeah, so what do you think about this? Uh, this year it's been... I think this is the last big year of cross-gen... And I think uh, that's mostly a good thing. And we have seen a lot of stuff come in pretty hot, like uh, Callisto came in super hot. Uh, Gotham Knights is my honorary cross-gen title of the year, <laughs> even though it's not cross-gen. Well, oh, yeah. Even though it's, even though it's yeah. not last-gen, it clearly is cross-gen. <laughs> yeah, yeah. um, for me, there would be two games that would stand out. Perhaps coincidentally, perhaps not. They're both Sony exclusives. Um, obviously, God of War Ragnarok, which came late in the year, was just like a super polished oh, yeah. experience on every console from day one. Even during the pre-release period when we were playing it, it was just coming in like super polished, super good, really great visuals on all platforms. And the other one would be Horizon Forbidden West, which scales beautifully from PS4 to PS4 Pro to PS5 in a way that I don't really think we saw from any other cross-gen titles this year. And it's still a good experience even on the base PS4. Uh, I would throw Gran Turismo 7 as another... PS exclusive, uh, which is yeah, excellent point. in terms of cross-gen. Yeah. That looks mm -hmm. great on all platforms. Uh, but honestly, the real champion for me, I'm just going to say it, it's Fortnite. Fortnite <laughs> is an amazing showcase of cross-gen in that it runs on everything from like mobile phones to the Switch. And then you've got all the new Lumen and Nanite features on the new consoles and the PC. And it just, it covers the whole swath. Every version can play together. And it's extremely scalable, plus a showcase for Unreal Engine 5. So I feel like that's just, I mean, it's a weird one because the game's been around for a while. So, but still, uh, considering what it's doing, it's pretty darn impressive. What about the second part of this question? Mm -hmm. Will 2023 be the year that we leave last gen behind? I mean, Oliver, your Callisto Protocol video is basically screams out that, <laughs> you know, leave, leave it alone. <laughs> Leave, leave those old machines let them you know put them out to pasture <laughs> yeah that was a pretty rough uh that was a pretty rough game on last gen consoles especially on the base xbox one where it's like very frequently 20 to 25 fps just not a good experience at all and you can definitely see it in every aspect of the game design like from the assets to the loading times to everything it just feels like a game where the last gen version is something they obviously they had to produce it but it doesn't feel like they really should have in my opinion there have been some pretty rough cross-gen releases and i think in part that speaks to the fact that the current gen adoption rate has been very high and that uh, sales seem to be very tilted towards current gen games and i think a lot of developers are dropping those titles and they're having trouble development because of COVID and other factors so I certainly hope this is the last year of major cross-gen development, and it does seem to be that way going into 23, yeah. Mm, John, you, you, you've you been like wanting to see the back of the old machines for years now, right? Yeah, yeah. And uh, <laughs> I think it's increasingly going to be the case next year. Most of the big titles that we know of do not have last-gen versions planned for them. Uh, there's still going to be some, of course, but I think we're finally reaching that point where it's slowing down to the point where 
think developers are more comfortable releasing exclusive for the new generation of consoles. Uh, so I'm extremely happy to see that. It'll also ease the burden on them because, you know, if you're shipping a game across all current consoles right now, that has to include the mid-gen refresh from last gen. So you've got four types of Xbox, th three PlayStations, uh, the Switch, and the PC that you have to contend with. That's a lot. There's so much that can go wrong there and often does. And it, it just puts extra pressure on the team at launch for all these versions that I think is not really worth it at this point. So, yeah. Yeah. Actually, thinking about the Callisto Protocol, Oliver, it was, um, and The Matrix Awakens did it as well, cutscenes running at 24 frames per second. Uh, actually, I didn't put it on the sheet, but I just was reminded of this question from Juan Casanovas. Uh, he's basically saying, I was wondering with the cinematic 24 FPS cap on last-gen machines on Callisto Protocol, is it possible if you set an Xbox One X to output 120 hertz, could you mitigate the judder? Because 24 hertz is, well, times it by five, you get 120. Yeah. So <laughs> so that could be one way to, to mitigate the 24 FPS judder. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> to, that that, that, that would work. It, he it, wants it, to know if we tested it and that we didn't test it. But, no. you know, but he's also asking if it's good for streaming content at 24 FPS. So this, um, if you double to 120 hertz instead of running out at 60 that that would kind of kind of work, right, John? Sweet. When he says streaming, what does what does he mean? Like, well, you know, let's say you're watching Netflix and you've got a hundred uh, you've got a twenty four FPS movie. Yeah, I mean that that works as long as it engages that mode. I mean that's how uh, the the Blu-ray standard works, right? It engages on these TVs usually the hundred and twenty hertz mode, but with the you know repeating a frame five times basically to get even cadence. So, okay. and that's, I mean, that's kind of how it's always worked. I mean, my old Pioneer Plasma has a 72 hertz mode exactly yeah. for that reason. So you can do 1080p 24 playback without judder. So, I mean, yeah, and that would work for games. Just uh, to uh, just to reiterate to developers, please, please don't do that. Please don't no. do 24 FPS <laughs> caps. <laughs> um, let's move on to the next question. This one from Alvin Geno, Geno. Um, very simple question, this, but I think it's worth answering. Hello, DF staff. Regarding shader compilation on PC, have you ever talked about why PCs seem to have to actually compile shaders while consoles are able mm -hmm. to just run the game? If not, I would love to hear your thoughts. Thanks. Fairly straightforward, this one, right, John? Basically, yeah. with a fixed platform, um, compiling the shaders is built into the build process on Unreal Engine. Precisely. Right? So it just it just works. Yeah, they've pre-compiled them and they just ship it with it. That's it. Yeah, uh, It's because I mean, the, the hardware is, is a fixed platform, so they know exactly yeah. what it needs to, to run on. Yeah, one of, the greatest, one of the greatest strengths of the PC is the diversity of hardware, but what it means is that those shaders need to be compiled for every single graphics card. And, you know, if the driver changes, I believe that the shaders need to yep. be recompiled yep. again. There's a, it's, it's, it's a big problem, but, you know, I, I think honestly think things will improve in 2023. It, um, it kind of feels like the whole shader model almost needs like a rethink or something. I don't know. Uh, because it, it feels like we're seeing like legacy issues with how they were, with how shaders work fundamentally. And just with the huge number of permutations we're now dealing with, it just doesn't work well without pre-compilation. And it would be great mm. if there was a way to 
essentially sidestep that somehow? I don't know. I don't know what's possible, but obviously that's the boat we're in at the moment. Yeah, it's just kind of baffling to me that, um, you know, we've got amazing PC hardware press out there. And, um, you know, we're still seeing bar charts showing, you know, games that have got stutter struggle, you know, with bar charts going up to like 200 FPS. And it's like a 4090 can go down to 20 FPS on your first playthrough. It's just like pretty, yeah, pretty bad. I, to me, this suggests, and I think this is the fundamental difference with a lot of benchmarks that you see out there is that when people are benchmarking something, they're they're doing it purely for the benchmark. It's not about playing the game, right? But if you yeah. actually play the game, this stuff stands out a lot more. And that's basically the difference between us and like, you know, when Alex is loading up something to test it, he's playing the game first and foremost and yep. then learning about it and then going back and doing all the benchmarking and comparisons and everything. And the shader stuff really sticks out. Whereas if you just got a tench be- test bench, a <laughs> tench best, that's funny. Uh, you know, you might load it up once or twice just to do some quick tests and then actually sit down and get down to business and, or throw out certain results. Or you're only like, well, I'm only interested in measuring this. So this is irrelevant, but it definitely feels like a lot of places just aren't really acknowledging it. And I'm, it's a, it's a bummer because we need people to acknowledge this like Alex is doing, like we're doing, uh, before, if we're going to see any change so yeah. and we know that some developers they, they're very much working on this right callisto now has an actual like compiling shaders ui element on the pc that pops up and you know they're they're working towards this and i don't think that would have happened if we hadn't been so proactive at calling it out mm. so oliver let's uh, go back one year almost to the day actually where um um Alex had gone on holiday, and you were given the uh, the job of doing Final Fantasy VII Remake on PC. Yeah. Oh. I'm presuming you'd played it before on uh, co- on consoles. Yeah, I'd been it twice I mean, before. This is, this, you're, you're not a, a PC-focused guy here at DF, so what did you think when you saw the, <laughs> the PC version of you know, you know Final Fantasy VII? How did that work out for you? Oh, it was just, it was unbelievable, like the degree of the stutter. And I never really experienced that on PC before, at least noticed it on PC before. 2021 was the year that the stutter struggle really came in with the widespread (laughs) adoption of DX12 across PC titles. And the fact that there was this major issue and also the bizarre, totally bizarre fact that by entering a string of code basically into the launcher, you could make it launch in DX11 and fix a lot of it, not all of it, but a lot of it. That was just such a bizarre situation. And this year, the stutter struggle for me this year was covering Resident Evil 8 on Mac, <laughs> which inexplicably, oh, yeah. even though they're like, you know, you got to think there's only a handful of build targets uh, in terms of GPUs on Apple Silicon Macs that had horrible shader compilation issues. So. Yeah, dude, exa- that's what I thought when I was watching your video as well. I'm like, wait a minute. Like, there are a finite number of Macs in existence, <laughs> yeah. right? This is yeah. not, like, the PC. Yeah. There are, like, should... four GPUs that can like, run well, that game. What the heck? <laughs> like, <laughs> it's almost a console at this point. Yeah. Oh, dear, oh, dear. Let's move on to the next question. This one from Sloth. It's easy to focus on negative things like shader stutter and GPU prices, but what are some positive developments you've seen this year that warm and replenish your hearts? <laughs> with hope for the future of gaming john wow uh i guess one of the things i would say is i've been really happy with the increased uh penetration of ray tracing in games 
and it feels like it's finally starting to convince people slowly but surely it's becoming more common in games and people are starting to really understand the benefits and i think we're on the cusp of it becoming much more of a normal thing with as unreal engine 5 titles begin to ship and we see you know software or hardware accelerated lumen depending on their targets uh i think it's just going to become the norm um and i guess you know with some games we're still going to have that trade-off where you've got to sacrifice rte for more performance or whatever but i think developers are becoming increasingly capable of extracting decent ray traced results out of the consoles but then also offering much higher end modes for pc users to enjoy now, I do think the waters have been muddied a little bit with stuff like the Witcher 3 update, which has its own performance limitations. That's not, I wouldn't place the blame on ray tracing in that case. It's just uh, some of the decisions they made have resulted in a very heavy game. But, you know, I'm, I'm thrilled to see that. Plus, uh, we've seen a number of games start to, the cross-gen stuff is slowly but surely disappearing. And it feels like going into 2023, it's going to be a pretty strong year for for gaming in general oliver positive things from 2022 i think in line with john's comments one thing that i really enjoyed about this year was the fact that we saw so many ray tracing updates for major titles we saw fortnite obviously late in the year the witcher 3 portal rtx they're all the resident evil games got uh, big ray tracing updates that shipped on last gen consoles gta 5 got two ray tracing updates uh one for Shadows and the one adding actually reflections to uh, the PS5 and Series X. And also we saw lots of unofficial work adding ray tracing updates, obviously late in the year with the Portal RTX modding uh, business. Um, but also <laughs> with uh, with Quake as well, a very good, interesting, um, complete version of Quake running with ray tracing. So I've been a really big fan of that. It's been really interesting to see it and I hope it continues because you're able to breathe so much life visually into older titles that maybe don't hold up super well or even games like the witcher which you know are showing their age to, to some degree still look decent but are showing their age to some degree um, and it seems like you're able to do it without an enormous amount of development resources so that's definitely very compelling as as hardware progresses i have one more i want to add to it the improvement the rise of rpcs3 uh, PlayStation right. 3 emulation really came into its own this year. Uh, the team there made some major strides in terms of overall performance and more games are running better uh, with more accurate visuals. It's uh, f And not only that, it dramatically transforms many PS3 titles, raising frame rates, allowing huge boosts to image quality. It's just an absolute joy uh, to enjoy PS3 games on your PC. So that's an awesome thing. Yeah, I've got a couple of positive things to contribute. First of all, um, Fortnite Unreal Engine 5. We went into this year with a lot of announcements for Unreal Engine 5 games, but only a couple of demos actually showing Unreal 5, uh, Engine 5 running on consoles, which raised as many uh, questions as there were answers. If you look back at The Matrix Awakens, it's awesome, right? But the performance isn't great. So the question was, well, if so many people are embracing this new engine, and it, it looks amazing, no doubt about it, but it runs like this, that's a problem. Um, that was kind of all put to bed, I think, with Fortnite. Obviously, we're not seeing Matrix Awakens style graphics, but the point is that the underlying systems, the ray tracing lighting, um, the, the nanite uh, geometry, the virtualized shadows, all of that stuff was in there and running at 60 frames per second and running at 60 frames per second on Series S. 
which I think is is pretty awesome. So, you know, I go into um, the, the next year looking forward to those Unreal Engine 5 games. And sure enough, the Brain Thruster Epic has has seemingly solved the key problems that were facing Unreal Engine 5. Second positive thing is just RTX 4090 um, is, has just been phenomenal. Uh, it's, it's the first GPU where you can bench it, but it doesn't really matter the numbers don't matter it just you know factoring out starts a struggle everything it does is just you know it just solves everything for graphics it's just quite phenomenal and um you know dlss3 frame generation you know it, it came out there was a lot of um uh, controversy around it but we could see the potential of the technology and we we're already seeing it overcoming cpu bottlenecks as seen in the witcher 3 it's a uh, really, really useful technology. And a third thing to take away from 2022, Steam Deck, right? Yes, um, I was just thinking that. You know, that's that's an incredible uh, machine. It's It kind of has uh, achieved the impossible in many ways. You know, they've basically taken PC gaming and moved it into a completely different arena. Um, PC games are being played in different ways now, thanks to this device. And just the concepts that, you know, games are running under Linux on it through a compatibility layer and it's still performant. Uh, I think it's my number one um, sort of best hardware of the year, if you like, um, because it's it's just it's just pretty amazing what they're doing there. And I just didn't expect it to be that good. I didn't expect the silicon to be that capable. I didn't expect PC games to be that scalable. But it seems that, you know, you can do an awful lot at 720p resolution with pretty limited resources. So, yeah, that, that's another thing that's been uh, really heartening to take from 2022. There's been some really positive stuff out there. It's just there's been a malaise in terms of game releases, a lot of delays, uh, a lot of dissatisfaction, obviously, on the PC side where we're kind of dreading you know, stuttering issues with each new release. But, you know, it's there's a lot of good stuff in there Man, as well. Rich, so. the thing about the Steam Deck that really blows my mind is uh, if you think about it, just go back five, six years or whatever and say like, yeah, in 2022, you'll be able to have a portable gaming system that can do real-time ray tracing. Yeah. Like, it's not mm-hmm. the fastest at it, but the fact that it works at all and is, is playable in many games, that's mind-blowing. Okay. Like well, this. it's not on SteamOS at the moment. Well, <laughs> yeah, but still, like but the, hardware the hardware can, can do, do it. it. If you're running under Windows, yeah, it's quite remarkable. Um, okay, so let's move on to the next question. Um, AFC Steve asks, Merry Christmas, DF. What was your surprise game of 2022 and most mm. disappointing game of the year? Happy New Year as well. Happy New Year to you and Merry Christmas. Uh, John. Okay, well, most surprising I'll start with, actually, I wanted to mention this earlier, is uh, the punch win, I guess you could say, uh, because it just came out of nowhere. It's a new game from yes. Shinin Multimedia. <laughs> it just dropped in the last couple days uh, out, again, out of nowhere. There was no real lead up to this. It's like, hey, here's a new Shinin game. It's their first pixel art game in 17 years. Uh, it's really fun. <laughs> it's beautiful. Great music. I mean, it's just, you know, it's what they do. There was plenty of other great games this year, but that one was truly surprising because I never saw it coming, uh, which is cool. But on the disappointing side, I have three things that I would list. Uh, the first one I would say is actually Bayonetta 3, which I think is a good game, but I was really let down by, I think it's an ugly game visually most of the time. It runs really badly. Uh, it's the worst performing mainline Bayonetta game. 
uh, if you ignore the PS3 release of the original, mind you. Um, and yeah, it's just, man, uh, there's just something about it that really rubbed me the wrong way. Like, I think it's mostly well-made, but woof, it let me down. And I would also throw in Ghostwire Tokyo, and only because I loved Tango Gameworks' prior games, the, the Evil Within 1 and 2, uh, but Ghostwire, it leans too much into that open-world icon simulator, so that despite its unique themes and ideas, you're doing a lot of somewhat boring, repetitive stuff. And worst of all, they completely mangled the controls when using a gamepad. Uh, just the amount of input latency and just sluggishness when using a, a pad. I know it's their gamepad implementation because on the PC it feels fine with a mouse and keyboard, but you pick up an Xbox One pad and it's terrible, just like it is on PS5. It just feels horrible. So it's something wrong with the way their gamepad implementation works. So those two things really drug it down. I couldn't be bothered to finish it as a result. And then lastly, I wouldn't say it's a disappointing release overall, but uh, the Sonic Origins collection, I'm bummed out that they force a, a bilinear filter over every game. So these are pixel art games. They should be razor sharp. This should have been definitive widescreen versions of all these games, and it's so close to being that, but then you have this awful blurry filter on top of everything, and I don't understand why. It's just a boneheaded move, and they completely failed on that aspect in an otherwise solid package. So uh, I'm st like, they could still fix it, but come on, guys. Like, what are you doing? Come on now. <laughs> come on now. <laughs> <laughs> Oliver, I'm going to put that question to you. Surprise game and disappointing game. Well, I'll start with the disappointments. Because <laughs> <laughs> you've covered um, a few of them. All right. I've covered a couple of them. Probably my most disappointing game of the year would have to be Pokemon Scarlet and Violet. Oh, I think yeah. from a technical perspective, it's it's hard to know exactly what went on there, but like the artwork, the practices in open world visual design, the fact that it performs extremely poorly and is bug ridden and... I mean, obviously, you could go on for a long time with that one, but that was a very compromised release. As a runner-up in that category, I'd have to say Gotham Knights, just because it came in with visuals that I think, in a lot of respects, Arkham Knight looks significantly better. And then also just the performance, which, yeah. I mean, when I got that code initially, I was just like, okay, I, I gotta wait for the patch, but the patch never, never came. came. <laughs> <for that one. laughs> man, picking Pokemon, man, I your video, man, it just completely ripped it apart, and it was really entertaining, but... The thing is, is like at the beginning of the year, we were all talking about Pokemon Legends Arceus and how, oh man, this looks terrible. I even used it as an example in the Horizon video of how not to do distant world rendering, but then they released this other <laughs> game that's so much worse. It makes Arceus or Arceus, it makes it look like, I don't know, Cyberpunk with Ray Tracing or something. It looks so, so much yeah. better. Uh, and then my most, uh, I guess my most pleasing game uh, that, that was a surprise, actually... It was kind of late in the year. It was very recent, but um, I was quite pleased with what Square Enix and Tosa did with Crisis Core. I was not expecting too much from it, and it was it's not like a full-on remake like Final Fantasy VII Remake or some other visual remakes that we've seen in the year like The Last of Us Part One. but they've updated and replaced enough stuff, I think, and smartly kind of spent development resources where it needed to be spent to make the game look pleasing, and they updated the gameplay in a lot of really key ways to modernize it. So... I was quite pleased with that release. Um, surprise game of the year. For me, it's got to be the Quake mod that added full path tracing, mm. even to the point where the trailer for it announcing its release was actually a trailer 
announcing the delay of the Half-Life <laughs> ray tracing mod. And oh, yeah. then it just went straight in. Oh, yeah, but we've done this instead. And, yeah, there's been some controversy about it. And uh, Alex has been accused of ruining retro PC gaming <laughs> with this video. But uh, I loved it. And I'm a big fan of Quake. I still think the multiplayer holds up beautifully. I think it's just an incredible multiplayer experience. And um, it was uh, great to do the campaign co-op Let's Play and the, the death match that we did, which uh, if it's not out now, will be out on the channel soon. That was a lot of fun. I enjoyed that. Yeah. We, we've got to do this kind of thing again. That was great. Mm. Yeah, it was awesome. A disappointment? Well, I think you've covered pretty much all of the major disappointments. <laughs> so let's move on to the next question. Um, this one from Gerodactyl. <laughs> um <laughs> What do you think was the most technically complete game of the year, as in had the most advanced engine technology while also performing extremely well? Great question, right, John? I can mm. only really think of, I mean, for me, it's Horizon Forbidden West. What do you think? That's, that was going to be my answer as <laughs> yeah, well. Because yeah, spoilers. It's, it's so <laughs> scalable, but so beautiful. And uh, wow, what a, what a stunning game that just runs well on everything, especially now they've continued to update it. Uh, it is the antithesis of a game I like more, Elden Ring, which is a fantastic game, but oof, the technology, it does not does not fit this category at all. Yeah. Um, is there anything else, though, that really stands out? Um, I would say God of War Ragnarok, just for achieving yeah. great visuals across all platforms, but obviously that isn't really pushing current-gen tech. Uh, in a way that's as compelling as a game like Horizon. Yeah, Ragnarok's a, a beautiful looking game, but not like a stunning one in that same sense. Like you can, yeah, it feels very much like a PS4 game running with enhanced things, yeah. whereas Horizon somehow feels it's one of the most beautiful next gen games we've seen, if you will. Uh, yet it still runs and works really well on last gen consoles. So that's that's what really makes it stand out. Yeah, it's the, the magic of proceduralism and a yeah. really good developer. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, Horizon's an interesting one because when it launched, I mean, it was one of the few games when it launched, I guess Callisto is another one where initially, at least, we preferred the 30 FPS mode simply because the detail level that you got was just unbelievable to the point where it looks like there was actually too much detail to be pushed into a 4K canvas you yeah. had that kind of negative load bias effect to some of the uh, effects there. Um, but I think the thing that really interested me with that was how they didn't just sit there and um, and let the 60 FPS mode be kind of like the poor relation in terms of visual quality. They actually went back to it, ma massively improved it. I mean, it's compared yeah. to launch, that 60 FPS mode. Wow. And uh, now the 60 FPS mode, I think it's fair to say is the the best way to play what do yeah you reckon, they completely changed the way they handle anti-aliasing basically <laughs> they re-architected yeah. it to solve those problems based on the response from the community and i mean what the heck that's uh that's some amazing support right there so good on them for that yeah and but, also but, 40 fps and yes. vrr modes and just exactly. it was amazing the post-launch support yeah the, the vrr situation with sony has been quite interesting hasn't it because um, we went into this generation with PlayStation having no VRR support at all. And the amount, you know, obviously the, the games were pretty performant anyway. So it wasn't a massive miss. But when a game didn't quite hit the target, you kind of think, well, VRR would have sorted this. 
John, what do you make of their approach to VR? Because it's actually different to Microsoft's, which is basically, okay, just let the system handle it, do whatever you like. With Sony, they actually are looking for curation from the developer to actually utilize those modes more effectively. Do you think they've been successful there? Yeah, I'd say they have because, you know, you still have system-wide VRR that runs in just about all games. But uh, I really like these specific implementations. I think it's really smart because unlocking the frame rate, say, above 60 or, you know, doing some of these very specific modes doesn't make sense uh, if you don't have VRR. You wouldn't. You know, some people might argue, yeah, you know, lower input latency, but it it ends up looking bad. But just unlocking these features when connected to a VR display, I think, is the way to do it. And I think the Xbox should adopt that as well. Uh, It might be tricky, but I, I think the way they could do it on Xbox is essentially just put an option in there and make sure it's clear what it does so that, you know, because they can't really detect whether the system's on a VR screen or not, I think but you could still put an option in yeah. there for it where it's like, Hey, if you turn it, we recommend yeah. this option. If you, if you're using a VRR and you could turn it on. I think a Sobo yeah. for flight simulator, they had a VRR mode and it used some sort of heuristic algorithm to figure out whether you've got it enabled or not. So they, they kind of went, <laughs> they, they found a workaround. Yeah. But it's, it, it still Clever. wasn't ideal for flight simulator because of the CPU stutter. You can't yeah. VRR your way around that. No, no, that's a super heavy yeah. game. Um, okay, well, let's move on to our next question. This one from Via Nick. Uh, considering a good amount of hyped games releasing for consoles come with their own form of TAAU, what exactly were we waiting on FSR 2.0 for? Um, I think, we, well, there is that, but we were, we're still waiting for Microsoft's machine learning upscaling solution, uh, which has been in development for a long time. Uh, at some point, we'll need to check in with Microsoft to see whether that is actually still an active uh, area of research for them. Um, I think... The thing to bear in mind with FSR2 and Epic's TSR, Temple Super Resolution, is that these are kind of like a generation beyond TAAU. Yeah. They're mm-hmm. doing more. They're, ba- they're basically able to get better results from lower resolutions. They're able to produce better results often than native resolution rendering uh, in select scenarios. Um, I don't think it's either of those solutions have quite matched up to DLSS just yet. No. But they do seem to have a sweet spot when outputting to a 4K resolution from a lower internal base resolution. And uh, Oliver, you, you saw this on Scorn, I believe. Yeah, I've seen actually quite a few FSR2 titles um, this year. I think Scorn was the first one that we confirmed the use of FSR2, which yeah, I basically yeah. did by looking at the PC version and doing various tests, including disocclusion tests and looking at artifacting on transparencies. And that was a little bit of a more conservative upscale. So you had it going from basically uh, what seemed like a lock 1440p to 4K. So not a super aggressive upscale. But we've seen later in the year uh, with Forspoken, the Forspoken demo, which does seem to be using FSR2 as well. And that is working from some much more aggressive resolutions. Um, I Basically, like the performance mode, it's averaging like 900p. In the ray tracing mode, it's averaging about 1000p or so. And that actually does a pretty good job of bringing that to a 4K resolve from a normal viewing distance on a large television. It is reasonably 4K-like, like you can definitely see reconstruction issues, but it's very good considering the uh, <laughs> relatively low internal resolution. And I think that's really the big takeaway from 
FSR2 and uh, TSR relative to TAAU or checkerboarding is basically that four times resolution scale, that 50% scale on each axis. Getting a decent resolve out of that requires the reuse of a lot of different frame, frame data and getting a good resolve without an enormous amount of temporal artifacts is very difficult, right? So that's really where those techniques come in. Yeah, I think uh, CDPR also added it to their games. Cyberpunk and Witcher 3 have it. Uh, I think the the main reason that TSR and FSR2 are useful for console developers is uh, for those teams that weren't planning to develop their own solution. Like, I wouldn't see Insomniac, for instance, abandoning what they've done, because I think it's very good, and it probably will be improved, but most studios aren't going to be crafting their own up-sampling methods, right? So just having... These yeah. are additional tools in the toolbox, so to speak. TSR will be native, I guess, to Unreal Engine 5, and I suspect we're going to see a lot of that. And then FSR2 is useful in many other instances as well. So I think it's also the key to unlocking more ray tracing performance from these machines uh, by keeping the internal resolution much lower. I mean, yes, it has a cost, of course, but it's still much less expensive than trying to hit those higher pixel counts, especially with ray tracing. Yeah, we saw on the performance RT modes in the Insomniac games that it, that it works. Uh, you can run at lower resolutions and um, still get a good-looking output. Big time. Um, let's move on to this final question about 2022. This one from Neon5 or, or N30NV, if you prefer. <laughs> <laughs> it's neon five um as a look back at 2022 would love to hear oliver's thoughts on the time he has spent as part of the df team and where he thinks from his perspective there's some room for improvement leading to what richard john thinks could be done to make everyday content more unique compared to previous years without adding drama <laughs> <laughs> you're very dramatic oliver um uh, and there's some other questions here which I'll uh, I'll address shortly. So yeah, I'm I was really interested in this question, Oliver, because obviously it's been like I don't know, uh, maybe thirteen, fourteen months yeah, now that you've so. been contributing, and I'm curious about this. How, what what do you make of it all? And are, is there any room for improvement? <laughs> well, uh, yeah, I mean it's been super fun um covering all the games that i've covered for df i think there's been like i mean i went back through the other day and there's going to be like 50 game analyses if not a little bit more and then the df directs obviously and lots of other stuff uh it's been super fun and it just fe it feels like something that i kind of came into and had a pretty good idea of what i was doing reasonably quickly but i definitely do think that uh, a lot of things have improved along the way my production process now is just it feels much more natural and um, yeah, I, I don't know what room for improvement there would be. I can certainly take uh, criticism and whatnot. So if anyone has any, no, I'm not sure. It's I'm, I think he's maybe thinking uh, how a fresh perspective on digital foundry could actually improve content across the board. So I don't think it's a critique of your specific <laughs> input, but rather you know a fresh look at what we're doing and maybe ideas oh. on how we can do things differently. Uh, well, I mean, I, I, I don't, I don't know yeah, about that. It's, it's, it's a, a tough big, question. It's a big question. Tough question, yeah. <laughs> uh, it's something we'll need to talk about maybe in a strategy day early next year. Because <laughs> oh, yeah. there's, uh, there's things that, you know, we can basically now, after a year, well, this has actually been a really interesting year because there haven't actually been that many games. Mm -hmm. And yet, and, and, and yet we've seen a lot of uh, websites losing a big chunk of traffic because they don't have that material to, to work with. But we haven't really been that badly affected, to be honest. Um, 
you know, we've kind of trundled along and done our thing and everything's kind of worked out okay. But at the same time, I always believe that there's room for improvement. The reason I'm still in this game after decades is because I always want to do better and do new things uh, and tell new stories and, you know, come come up with new angles. That's kind of like what keeps things fresh, what keeps things exciting. And sometimes it's just, uh, you know, a natural thing from uh, staff members that, that just transforms the entire uh, way we do things. And I think uh, John played a big part in that because when we started out on YouTube, we didn't really know what we were doing. And uh, John actually, I think, championed the kind of narrative way that we present now rather than just presenting data, which was the initial sort of uh, route forward. And it is basically, you know, I always liken it to uh, like a car review. You know, fundamentally, if you're just going to tell people what the 0 to 60 time of a car is, then you have a data point, but you don't actually have any perspective on what it's like to own the car. And that's kind of how we change things and turn things around at DF. I would say uh, the initial YouTube offerings were pretty much like the equivalent of motion bar charts, if you will. It's yeah, just, sure. You know, there's... There wasn't much to it, but yeah, uh, I thought it was fun to try to tell stories, have some fun, you know, add more narration to it. I mean, before we even did that, I think there was actually another mysterious member of DF uh, that was with us for like two weeks that was going to do like video content who then yeah. uh, bailed after he's like, nope. <laughs> and then we kind of had to shift gears again. <laughs> yeah, there was, you know, so many ideas for what we were actually going to do with Digital Foundry at the beginning. We approached a number of people and we were, you know, there was kind of more of a a, a different style of mix to begin with. It was like, you know, well, you know, what is Linus doing? Should we be doing something similar? Should we be getting in better presenter type people? Um, that was one approach that we tried. It didn't work. Never, the content never even hit the channel. So, yeah, there's a, there's a lot going on um, uh, in the history of DF that maybe we'll talk about at some point. Yeah. But we kind of hit our stride, I think, uh, sort of 2018, 2019, and then 2020, when we had the new wave of consoles arriving. That's when things really took off. But uh, I'm going to go back to uh, Neon Neon 5 here. With uh, He's got a follow-up question. Oh, yeah. He's asking about my one gigabit internet connection. And he's wondering if I've had any fun with streaming services. <laughs> um, uh. <laughs> I did actually try um, xCloud the other day. And um, it was certainly a lot better than, than I've experienced before. To the point where I was actually playing Fortnite on it. Because I was kind of curious to see whether you get the Lumen Nanite experience on streaming. And you do. Um but yeah, I wanted to give it a go. It actually worked out okay from a latency perspective, but I do think that when you're using a controller, it hides a lot of lag um, just by the nature of the of the controller itself. What I did note was a quite a lot of macro blocking breakup, which looked to me like a bug in the decoder on my side because I've never seen it before. Uh, so I think if I'm going to go back to that, I'll probably have a go with Edge since it's kind of like the natural home of Microsoft. Uh I still wouldn't want to play games like that compared to having an actual Series X here, though. Um, but, you know, GeForce Experience, GeForce Now, rather, I'm kind of curious to see how that would hold up uh, with, with my new connection. Uh, whew, wow, so many questions here. We're going to move on now. Questions about 2023. 
And uh, this one from Helvetica Bold. <laughs> I love this name. <laughs> uh, I'll be uh, Comic Sans. <laughs> um, games and hardware in 2023 is going to be really stacked. If you had to pick one thing you're looking forward to most in 2023, what's it going to be? E.g. PlayStation VR 2, Spider-Man 2, Starfield, The Legend of Zelda, Tears of the Kingdom. The list goes on. Uh, John, what are you looking forward to most in 2023? Oh gosh, picking just all one. of those things. Oh, that's tough. Um, Final Fantasy 16 is definitely at the top of that list. I'm extremely really? excited for that. I can't wait to look at that one. Uh, that's definitely a high on my list. Uh, I am actually really interested in Star Wars Jedi Survivor because uh, yeah. I thought the last one was phenomenal, and I, you know, I'm really curious to see what they do with that. Obviously, Zelda, Street Fighter Six, those are all big games, and Starfield as well. I'm really curious to see because it's a it's a Bethesda game with themes that that are really up my alley, so to speak. Uh, of course, I know you guys are all looking forward to Arc Two, starring Vin Diesel, so that'll be along. <laughs> of course, and then you know, I mean. I really can't just choose one. Uh, all of the ones that he's listed are good. I mean, PSVR 2, yeah, of course. I'm very curious to see what the heck that is. Uh, you know, so there's going to be a lot of stuff in 2023, though. What do you think, Oliver? <laughs> what's, oh, on yeah. your, what's on your list? My number one is probably, uh, geez, Final Fantasy VII Rebirth, I think it's called. The next installment in FF7 Remake. Oh, is that happening Late 23 was the uh, putative oh, date for so. it. So that's that's pretty that great. <laughs> yeah, I think that'll be really exciting. I love the what they did with the remake in 2020. I'm super looking forward to that, especially with the larger focus and the PS5 exclusivity. I think that'll be a really interesting game. And what they've shown off so far, while very limited, has definitely gotten me excited. Um, obviously, Zelda has got to be up there. Starfield's up there. But also some remakes. Resident Evil 4 remake is coming out, I believe, in oh, March. Oh, yeah, yeah, of course. And then Dead Space is coming up pretty fast in January, so oh, I'm looking forward to that. You're right. Man, there's some good stuff I coming. I mean, 2023 is stacked. It's, I mean, we, yeah. we had a, a pretty lean time of it in 2022, but next year it's just going to be so many games. Unbelievable. Yeah. Going to be rushed off our feet. Uh, yeah, for me personally, Spider-Man 2, I'm really curious to see what Insomniac can do. Um, with a with the next generation of their engine that isn't in any way beholden to the last generation at all, had a hint of it with Ratchet and Clank, but I think it was just a hint. I'm just really looking forward to what they're doing there. Um, let's uh, move on to uh, the next question. This one from Malik Graves Pryor. Nintendo Switch has been on the market for almost six years and sold 114 million units globally to date. Because Nintendo has had a five to six year console release cadence since the GameCube, however, I think we're very likely to get the Switch 2 in 2023. Mm -hmm. Given the Steam Deck, Ain, Odin Pro and Aya Neo tech, as well as Nintendo's history of not pushing the technological envelope, what kind of Switch 2 do you believe will be realistic in for 2023? Tech specs, performance relative to Tegra X1, display resolutions, etc. Uh, John, interesting mm -hmm. question, right? Um, it's still not confirmed as to whether we actually get the next generation Switch. I don't believe year. we're going to get this in 2023. I'll just say that much. Mm, I would be really interested to see it. I hope it happens. And I certainly think based on um, some of the sell-through figures I've seen for Switch, 
um, it is losing momentum. It is at the end of its life cycle. And um, mm-hmm. I do think it is time for a sequel, for, for a revised version. We've also had the Jetson Nano, which is hosting a processor that really looks like the next generation switches. Yeah, essentially, it's a, um, they've um, cut down the, um, the the main Tegra chip for automotive. And uh, I'd say it's at least twice as powerful as the current switch. But it's I think it's got to be more than that. To, to justify but the concept that it's not super powerful kind of suggests to me that it might be the next generation switch i think every every time a new nintendo product comes along everybody looks to the state of the art in technology now it's true that in this particular case they will be using a new processor but at the same time nintendo aren't really interested in ray tracing they aren't really interested in um you know absolute state of the art They'd take longer battery life over that every single time, and just rely on the uh, on the skills of their developers to work with whatever hardware they're given. Mm-hmm. So I don't think we should be expecting anything major from a Switch. But John, did you have something to add there? So I think at one point internally, from what I can understand from talking to different developers, is that there was some sort of mid-generation Switch update planned at one point. And that is seems to no longer be happening. And thus it's pretty clear that whatever they do next is going to be the actual next generation hardware. Uh, I don't think it's going to be 2023. Um, and I think Nintendo itself is probably likely very nervous about this transition because let's face it, their last few transitions have not gone well. Uh, GameCube was, was a flop and then they had the Wii, which is a huge success. But then they tried to do the Wii U, and it was a miserable failure. And now they have a success again. Uh, how do you make that transition while keeping that audience happy and make it exciting again? Like, there's a risk that if they just do more Switch, like enhanced Switch, uh, it won't necessarily get that same buzz. But if they go too far from the concept, they can alienate their fans again. Uh, they, I think they need to ensure that Switch games work on whatever comes next. It has to have backwards compatibility. That's not even a given at this point, but I would hope so. Uh, there's just so many decisions to make, in, to make, including just something as simple as the name. Like, what the heck do you call it? We've been waiting for them to go back to the Super Well for a while. <laughs> you know, Super Switch could work, but then would it just be viewed as an upgrade? They're not going to use Switch Pro, obviously. That's not going to happen. Uh, are they going to call it something else? Are they going to call it the Switchy? No, they're not going to call it the Switchy. I don't. Think... <laughs> but uh, there's just a lot of problems to solve there, and I think they're pretty nervous about doing it. And this is the first launch since all the new leadership's been in place within Nintendo, so uh, we just don't know yet what's going to happen. I mean, I think that if it ends up shipping with something like the uh, Tegra T two three nine that was postulated at one point. That'll be a massive increase in power for the Switch, and it'll come along with all kinds of new technologies that you'd expect, like DLSS. Yeah, I think the thing that the thing that's happened with the Jetson Nano is that it's actually there's two versions of that chip, and one has basically got a uh, thousand and twenty-four CUDA cores rather than the two thousand and forty-eight of the other, which is obviously a, a big cut yeah. down. Uh, but at the same time, 
it would kind of, this is what I'm kind of alluding to earlier, it would make sense for a Nintendo yeah. handheld. I, I think it would make sense, but also remember that the Switch as it stands is like 250, is it has a 256 core Maxwell GPU, 25.6 yeah, gigs of from, RAM. From 2015. Yeah, four, eight cores on <laughs> yeah. the on the, uh, on the the chip with four disabled, <laughs> you know, uh, at one gigahertz as well. It's, it's, it's a chip that, yeah, it was state-of-the-art in 2015, but in 2023, it's not looking so hot. I don't think there will be a new Switch in 23. I think it's probably later, maybe 24. But I would expect that no matter what Nintendo ships, it will be a big upgrade just because of the amount of time and generations that have passed and the improvements in architectures and technologies but um yeah it remains to be seen exactly how they handle that transition and i'm nervous especially after psvr2 about the possibility it might not natively play all switch software i mean psvr2 the situation makes a lot of sense because the entire tracking system is different the way the controllers work is completely different i mean the button when you're in vr and you see like a diagram of the move controller and you're using like the psvr2 wands like the whole thing just falls apart there's a lot of reasons why i think it wouldn't work uh well there but with this i think there's a much better chance the big thing i think they need to get right is that it needs to be the equivalent of the Switch in 2017 in relation to other consoles in the market. That is, it needs to be possible to run PS5 and Series S, I would say, quality games on this portable machine with the obvious cutbacks, but developers need to be able to easily bring those projects over to whatever Nintendo does next. If they can't do that, they're going to be in serious trouble, I think, in terms of like developer support, because nobody wants to go back to making bespoke versions of games that are different significantly different uh or you know extending essentially the cross-gen cycle further if you will if it's like no more than like whatever we had last time so i think that's a huge part of what they're doing it has to it has to run modern games yeah interesting question right john because they can't they can't go back from the switch model they've switched internal development to one (laughs) specific platform yeah (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> to one specific platform. It used to be the case that they had developers assigned to mobile and they had developers assigned to console, but now they're all in on Switch. So they can't go back to any other model. They're all in on the Switch concept, I think. And being mobile has given them a massive advantage in that it's a unique uh, aspect to gaming that nobody else is really doing, apart from Valve and Steam Deck. But yeah, really interesting to see where they go next. What is the next innovation to do with a Switch when you've done Switch? <laughs> so yeah, interesting stuff. It kind of leads us on to this question from uh, Kia UK. Hello, DF. Do you think Nintendo uh, would possibly add a function to run Switch in a pseudo TV mode during handheld uh, while Switch is being charged? to mitigate Switch showing its age for new games when playing in handheld. So I guess the idea that he's coming up with here is that all of the extra GPU power that the Switch gets when it's docked, you can have when you're playing handheld. And uh, the difference being that, you know, you're basically running from mains and uh, that wouldn't cause any issues in terms of battery life. I would go one further than that. I actually think that because of the um, uh, the 16 nanometer chip in the in the later switches, the Switch OLED and the the Switch Lite, um, I would suspect that you could probably run it from battery and still get equivalent battery life to the original Switch. 
So what do you reckon, John? It's an interesting concept, right? But I think it's mm. handheld has never really been the problem for a Switch handheld performance. I, I, I think this sounds too complicated for a Nintendo product. This, it would be like a boost mode, I think. Is yeah, I mean, this of. is the type of thing that they never really got into in the past. Like the 3DS, for instance, with the new 3DS, it was a much faster machine, but they never allowed prior games that weren't designed with new 3DS in mind to take advantage of that power. You needed to rely on homebrew to do it. Uh, they could have easily done that, though some games did have bugs, so I'm sure that's why they did not. But uh, I don't know. I feel like Nintendo doesn't... Like, just having two modes is already enough for them, and, like, adding in additional permutations seems very not Nintendo. Yeah, I, okay, I'd love something enough. like this, but it's so un-Nintendo <laughs> relative to what they yeah, do. it really so, is. Yeah. You, you can do it with a hacked console. You can, yeah. yeah. Straight, straight off the bat, yeah. Uh, let's move on to the next question. We're moving into general Q&A now. This one from Trans Tech Girl. Slight, slightly less short, but just as sweet. What are your thoughts on the possibility of AMD's DLSS 3 frame generation competitor being capable of running on current-gen consoles? Even if it could, would it mm. be worth it? John? I don't think that's necessarily going to happen i mean if it could maybe but the thing about frame generation though is like it's mainly useful for targeting really high frame rates which would still be tough on these machines but if you're going from say like 30 frames per second up to 60 you know at least based on our experiences thus far i think the input latency is just going to be a problem and it's not necessarily going to be worth that so i don't know i mean it's not impossible and we've seen experiments. Do you remember that old uh, LucasArts experiments with... Uh, Absolutely, yeah. yeah. Yeah, that never came to fruition. But, you know, developers have been thinking about it. So it's not it's not impossible to think that somebody would try something like this on a console. But uh, AMD's new solution, it's hard to say if that would actually be applicable to any of these machines as they are. there. But uh, I don't know. I mean, if it's good, if FSR 3 is good... And if it's performed enough to run on console, I imagine we will see well, it on the, console, yeah. you know. That's the problem. But um, in terms of <laughs> yeah. the targets, I do agree that it, frame generation seems much better suited to 120 FPS and, and higher outputs or even like 80 FPS than 60 in a lot of titles. Maybe for some slower games, it would actually work pretty well on the consoles, provided the cost is not too expensive. But this is like supposition on supposition. We need to see FSR three first, because <laughs> yeah, you know, it's exactly. In, you know, we don't know how good it is. Maybe it's fantastic, but we have to we have to wait and see. There, I mean, Nvidia itself still has the problem where if you're not using a G Sync monitor, you basically can't run with VSync. If you do, the input latency yep. cost is significant. Uh, they can't assume you'll have such a display with these consoles. So, I mean, theoretically, somebody could take the Sony like approach and like, hey, if you have a VR screen, do something with this. Maybe I don't know. But, uh, yeah, it's, we'll just have to wait and see. Mm, yeah, I don't know what to make of this because we still don't really know what FSR 3 is. Yeah. <laughs> we know yeah, that we it's don't. got the potential to double performance. So, you know, the obvious candidate is frame generation, right? Um, but we don't know anything about the implementation, how it's going to work, when it's coming out. Um, crucially, how much the cost is on the GPU. Yeah. Um, potentially, you, uh, 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 the other thing, of course, is that doubling from 30 to 60, which would be the best use case scenario for a console, um, would present profound latency problems um, based on what we know of frame generation. 
maybe AMD have got something cooking that's that's different that that would alleviate these problems. I suspect it probably will run on any GPU because that's their philosophy. So yeah, it's not going to be beholden to bespoke um, AMD technology. I suspect it would run on the consoles, but by the time it comes out, I think we're going to be looking at um, its use on higher-end GPUs in the AMD space. And by that point, the consoles will actually be sort of lagging behind. Potentially, there could be some kind of pseudo 120 FPS mode using this. I don't really see it, though. But I guess we'll just have to wait and see. Next question from SM. It's time to talk about Game of the Year soon, and listening to the DF staff's favourite picks is a tradition I look forward to all year. On the topic of favourite games, would it be possible for you to ever talk about or make a separate video about your all-time favourite games? Oliver, what's your all-time favourite games, and would you like to make a video about Uh, (laughs) it? Yeah, my (laughs) all-time favourite. That's a tough one. Probably my all-time favourite game is World of Warcraft. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, specifically uh, Vanilla World of Warcraft, because I was... I was nine years old when World of Warcraft came out, and my mother had the uh, unfortunate decision to buy me a copy uh, a week after it launched. <laughs> I haven't played very much of the recent stuff, but yeah, I would love to do a, a video at some point, perhaps covering that or Vanilla WoW, or they did obviously they did World of Warcraft Classic recently. Yeah, I mean that would that would be up there, but it's it's sort of a weird game to to cover from uh, our perspective. <laughs> yes, John, can you see this concept working? Oh, uh, it could be fun. I don't. I have to think about this. I'm just, I'm complete still, lack I'm, of enthusiasm with that response. I'm I'm still bemused by World of Warcraft being mentioned because it's like it was such a popular game, and I've only ever played like 20 minutes of it ever, <laughs> uh, and I hated it. <laughs> so I was like, like and it just Fair it's 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 like uh it's like Roblox or something to me, where it's just this or Minecraft that just exists in this other world, and it's the most popular thing out there. And I just, it's not for me, but okay. uh, yeah, doing, doing a top games of all time list could be fun. It would just take a lot of time and thought to come up with that list. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, uh, my all time favorite game, I think it would have to be the original Quake. Just so many hours spent on Deathmatch on that. It's a good choice. And, um, you know, being there when it actually all happened was, was, was quite special as well. You know, when Quake World launched and suddenly multiplayer worked on a modem, <laughs> that was that was quite a a, a, a big sort of uh, thing to happen at that point. The Q test dropping that was you know there's oh, so yeah, much Q history test. with uh, with Quake and um, it was just a time where amazing things happened in the gaming space. You know, rapidly it was it was just quite amazing. Uh, let's quickly move on to the next question. This one from Techno Dan. Do you think Tears of the Kingdom will have a noticeable graphical upgrade over the previous game, considering? that Breath of the Wild was built for Wii U and simply ported to Switch at a higher resolution. Can Nintendo push the aging tablet hardware even further, despite Breath of the Wild still holding up and even looking better than newer titles? That's a really interesting conceit, right, John? Because Breath of the Wild is an amazing-looking game, bearing in mind the host platform that it's on, and it ran on the Wii U. (laughs) Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I expect a moderate graphical upgrade, but not a significant one, um, because I feel like pushing the visuals too far would simply cost too much in terms of image quality and performance that they don't want to give up. Nintendo is usually pretty careful with their visual targets to ensure that they kind of strike a nice balance between everything. So, uh, based on the trailers, it definitely looks great, 
but not like, you know, a generational leap. Not that we see it that often these days anyway, uh, when going from the beginning of a generation to the end, right? Yeah. I mean, Oliver, you've seen the trailers, right? So mm -hmm. what do you think? My big takeaway from the trailers, though this is hard to pin down exactly where this comes from, of course, was that image quality was very, very good. It was like very clean, crisp, clear. It looks yeah, like they've moved over to TAA. Um, it's hard to say where this is coming from, of course. Remember that famous uh, stuff about it being too big for Switch, obviously. Um, <laughs> that was one of it, the highlights of 2022. <laughs> yes, one of the highlights of 22. But I tend to think, especially given their collaboration with Monolith, I would hope and tend to think that they will move over towards some upsampling-based solution to actually get good image quality out of their open-world Switch game. Which, as we've seen with Xenoblade Chronicles 3, I mean, they, they had a really, really nice upsampling solution there that uh, worked from quite low base resolutions, despite the fact the Switch does not have much compute to do uh, various upsampling operations with. And I th would guess that outside of things related to image quality, that the game would generally have pretty similar graphics to the original game, especially considering they're reusing a lot of the work from Breath of the Wild, I believe, for the open world. Um, yeah, I've just you know, got a nagging doubt at the back of my mind because there's that Bayonetta 3 trailer that was all running at oh, 60 frames yeah. per second, all yeah. looked awesome, and then the final game didn't really look like it. And then nope. we had that Breath of the Wild trailer where the, uh, the assets looked too big for Switch. <laughs> <laughs> they were literally too big for Switch. But, you know, obviously um, I think a game's coming out in May this year, so I guess we'll find out at that point possibly sooner if there are preview opportunities didn't we we'll uh, we see there. something similar with the second mario and rabbits game as well where early media seemed to be yeah. higher quality and then the game comes out and it's like oh okay so uh they they seem to have embraced the quote-unquote bullshot if you will <laughs> so yeah uh, other platforms don't really need them nowadays though but <laughs> no so that's the point don't right? yeah. <laughs> switch yeah. though <laughs> You got, you got yeah. to keep you got to keep the magazines in mind, man. You, you don't want to be blowing up the <laughs> shots here. Come on. <laughs> oh dear, oh dear. Um, okay, let's move on to the next question. Evening, my dear DF dudes, says Nalasco. As the year is coming to an end, do you think we will see more live streams from you next year? I know you are busy working hard all the time, but it's always it always gives me a smile to see you guys live. Who knows? Maybe Mister Ledbetter would make a guest appearance. Well, I've actually got the internet connection to do it now. But nevertheless, I always get some great lulls to see you guys playing some games and answering questions. Have a great Christmas and a happy new year. Yeah, wow. John, you did a lot of live streaming last year. Not so much this year, no. but it's, fundamentally we are trying to achieve a better work-life balance. Yeah, and but I, I definitely have a lot more plans for live streaming. I've got some guests lined up. Uh, you know, just some shifts in the way things were working here this year and some other things that happened made it difficult to do as many as I would have liked. So, uh, but I mean, yeah, going into it, there's this perception. It's just like, OK, you just turn on the camera, start playing no, and streaming. Some people do that. But but it's, tough. it's not that easy. You've got to find guests. You've got to agree on the content that's going to be in there. You know, you've you've kind of got to plan it out. It's similar to DF Direct Weekly. When we first started it, it was just like, okay, let's just sit down for a couple of hours every week and talk about games. Um, but actually, <laughs> yeah. um, we put out the call to questions. We do the, you know, basically choose the questions. But more to the point, we actually have to comb through the week's news and actually put together a compelling package of stuff to talk about. 
and um, preferably to give people some time to think about that stuff before we sit down to record as well. So it actually eats up a pretty sizable portion of the working week for what is you know, something that you think you could just sit sit down and dash out. But that's definitely not the case. And it's the same with live streams. Mm-hmm. But I'd definitely like to see more. It would be great to actually just have a scheduled live, live, stream, live stream. But even that is difficult because, you know, your guests may not be able to make your scheduled slot. Exactly. So, so but yeah, yeah next year, really though, difficult. for sure, I, I, I have a lot more planned, at least. Maybe not regular, but a lot more so. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, let's move on to the final question of this show. Um, this one from PS3 Inquisition, something that I faced during the uh, face-off period. <laughs> the Sony Defense Force in full posture. Oh boy. Okay, um, so, since the year of the PS Triple is winding down, any chance of a quote-unquote best PS3 game in your year-end lists? <sighs> Why didn't I do that, John? Oh man, I should have done that. That was a, that's such a good idea. It was. Well, the thing is, the year the triple. I don't think it's over. Well, not technically. <laughs> it, it, well, it never ends. It could be a, a, a you know a kind of shifting twelve month period where we have to find out where you first started the year. That's of a the good triple. point. That's a good point. Yeah, but what is your uh, your your year oh, of the triple best of? I mean. I'm just going to say Ridge Racer 7 again because it's, <laughs> it's the game I keep playing on that darn thing. Like, I keep Ridge Racer 7 disc in my PS3 and I still play the game. It's still beautiful. 1080p 60. Uh, I mean, it's a game that looks better than a, a fair number of Switch games, I would say. So, for a 2006 title, it's pretty nuts. I love it. Okay. Uh, Oliver, did you have a triple? Oh, big time. I have oh, a yeah. launch PS3 right over there. <laughs> wow. And it's still um, working? It's still working, but I only use it uh, for backwards compatibility. How did you get it, though? You were probably too young to get a second job when it came out. <laughs> no, I was I was uh, 11 when it came out. I got it for Christmas. Oh, okay. oh man, that's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, so your parents had to work the second job. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I think probably my best PS3 game to hear now would be my best PS3 game uh, back when it when it came out, which is probably Final Fantasy 13. I love that game wow. so much. But actually, I've been playing a lot of PS3 over the past year, and I've been going back and playing a lot of racing games in particular, mm-hmm. um, including the Mod Nation Racers game and especially the MotorStorm titles. Ooh, and yeah. those would probably be, in a, in a contemporary sense, my favorite PS3 titles. The best way to play Final Fantasy thirteen, in my opinion, at the moment is probably through um, Xbox One X or Series X back, backwards compatibility, or yep. if you can sort out the PC release, <laughs> that could be a, a good experience as well. So. It's the best PS3 game, in my opinion, at the time of its release, but maybe it's not the best platform to enjoy it now. Mm, I've got two uh, that I'd like to bring up here. I think Uncharted 2 was kind of like, for me, the high point. That's yeah, when I can see that. Naughty Dog just, you know, I, I, at the time I was thinking, wow, these guys are like the Spielbergs of gaming because, you know, they, they actually put together a really compelling story. They actually were able to tell a story outside of cutscenes you had cutscenes which you actually watched because they were good but more to the point the dialogue continued into gameplay right that was the, that was what really struck me it wasn't just story gameplay story gameplay it all kind of merged together into one sort of uh, brilliant whole it's it's remarkable bearing in mind some of the absolutely phenomenal things it did 
but Uncharted 3 wasn't as good for me as Uncharted 2, even though, it, you know, they were doing stuff like the ship level, you know, which is just good. nuts, <laughs> absolutely nuts. <laughs> yeah. But Uncharted 2, for me, was where everything came together on the triple. Uh, the other title I'd like to point out as um, a bit of a star, I think, Super Stardust. Oh, yeah. Pure, pure oh, yeah. arcade experience, which was brilliant at launch. But then they went back and made it full 1080p, which I think is just phenomenal. And the reason they made it full 1080p is because they'd also effectively mastered 720p 120 for stereoscopic 3D. Um, so that was, you know, just a phenomenal game. And uh, it's kind of the title that, for me, put Housemark on the map and made me look forward and continue to look forward to every single game they do. And they rarely disappoint. I think I so, scored yeah, that one, uh, the full 1080p's in that video too. As well you should. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, that's that's where uh, that's where I stand as the year of the triple winds down. <laughs> but I don't think we've seen the end of the triple. It's just too good. Uh, okay, that's it. That's all of the questions. We've gone through a ton of them. <laughs> and uh, this is just even still a sampling of the amount of questions that we get every week when uh, we ask for submissions for DF Direct Weekly. But it's been great just to be able to do a bit of support or fan service for this particular Direct. And um, yeah, keep those questions coming. And of course, if you want to get involved, please do consider the DF Support Programme. Uh, yeah, you can basically submit your questions to, uh, for consideration on the show. You get early access to the show every single week. And it's just part of all of the amazing things that we uh, try to do on the DF Support Programme. But that's it. That is indeed the end of the show. Uh, like, subscribe, share as usual, ring the bell, blah, 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 blah. But I think just from all of us, it's been a pretty punishing 2022 and um, on the flip side though we've had more support from uh, the audience than ever before and it's that's true. hugely appreciated so thanks so much for uh, helping us through some troubled waters this year but that is it that is the end of the show and um, for us the end of 2022 and we'll see you next year <laughs>